Well, last week, the college football world was shocked when the unranked Texas Aggies beat the number one ranked Crimson Tide. Well, I hear y'all whooping now, but last week and the week before that, I was talking to many of you who were worried about how big the blowout was going to be with Alabama rolling over you. So much so, in fact, that some said, Roger, I was offered tickets and I'm not even going to go. And others were planning their escape at about halftime because they thought it would be so bad. But the Aggies then pulled out a last-second win with the final score being 41-38 to and ending a 19-game winning streak over Alabama. Now, if that score alone wasn't shocking enough, imagine for a moment that the margin of victory was not 41-38, to but it was 450-0. to now you're thinking, well, Roger, that's impossible. There's no way any team could win that kind of lopsided victory, much less against such a tough opponent. As you try to imagine how impossible a victory like that would be, you're just barely beginning to grasp what we're going to be looking at today in Judges chapter 7. Because in Judges chapter 7, what we're going to see is that God granted a miraculous victory where the odds were 450 to 1 as an army of 300 men went against 135,000 Midianites on the enemy side, and God gave Gideon that victory. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Judges chapter 7. And as we're turning there, let me remind you of the setting of the story. For seven years, the Midianites and their enemy allies have been marching into the land of Israel, and they've been decimating the land. They've been riding in on camels, and they've been stealing crops and livestock and destroying whatever they couldn't carry. And as we come to chapter 7, it's now time for the eighth annual invasion of the enemy. But this time, things are going to be different because they will not enter the land unopposed because God has raised up a man by the name of Gideon to deliver his people. And this is where we pick up in Judges 7-1 where it says, Then Jerubbal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Now, when we get to uh, verse 3, what we're going to see is there are 32,000 Israelites that are there on Gideon's side. And they're camping by the spring of Harad. Harad literally means trembling. And we're going to see that that was a pretty good description of many of the men in Gideon's army. They had good reason to be afraid. Even with 32,000 men, what they're facing is a well-armed army of 135,000. That army is just four miles to the north at the hill of Moreh. Where they are, they can see them spread out across the valley. Verse 12 describes the enemy as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In Judges 8.10, that's where we find that there were 135,000 Midianites. So this is a ratio of 4 to 1. The 32,000 to 135,000 is 4 to 1 odds. Now, not only are the Israelites outnumbered, but they're also outgunned. Because you'll recall over the seven years, there's not just been this raiding of the land where all the crops are stolen. The armory has been pillaged. Uh, the people were without weapons. And so the, the soldiers, if they had anything, they were very basic weapons. And they're facing a mounted army, meaning the Midianites have the advantage of speed and maneuverability. And so given this already difficult situation that the Jews are facing, uh, the words found in verses 2 through 8 would have been a complete surprise. Because it says, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. 
lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that, it, uh, that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and I will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, if I had been Gideon, I think I would have said something like, um, Lord, I think I heard you wrong. I thought you said I had too many men. Uh, didn't you mean the Midianites have too many men? You know, Gideon could have said, God, I was already struggling when the odds were four to one. But now you've made it exponentially worse. It's now 450 to one. Now, those type of mathematical odds would be true if you were just doing basic math. But as we saw last week, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Gideon would be right to be scared if God was not in the picture. But God was in the picture, as we previously saw in Judges 6.16, where it said, The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. With God being the force multiplier in this equation, uh, the odds are not 450 to 1. God says, The entire enemy is like one man, and I will defeat him. The size of the enemy's army didn't matter. It was the size of Gideon's God that mattered. It's not the size of the enemy's army that matters. It's the size of our God. And so as you think of whatever problems it is that you're facing this morning, I want you to look at that giant-sized problem and remember there is a God-sized solution to go with it. God is bigger than any problem Gideon faces, and he's bigger than any problem you and I face. Many of you have heard of Hudson Taylor. He was a famous missionary of the past who served in China. He founded China Inland Mission, and he saw many, many answers to prayer, literally over uh, several thousand recorded answers to prayer. And early on in his ministry, Hudson Taylor was facing a pretty severe need where he was trying to minister to 45 different families. And as he looked at the resources he had available, he had a total of 87 cents. 87 cents to take care of 45 families. And as Taylor looks at the problem, he didn't panic, but instead he prayed. He said, God knows our need. God can meet this need. And after praying, he wrote a note in his journal that said, we have this, the 87 cents, we have this and all the promises of God. And God came through and met that need. And God came through and met need after need for 51 more years as he served there in China. Taylor had less than a dollar, but he also had God. Gideon had 300 men, but he also had God. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have God. You have God's Holy Spirit who lives within you. You have God's Son as your Savior. 
As you think about your life and what you're facing today, I want you to think about uh, a bank balance sheet. And you can mentally think of the problems that you're facing and put them all down one side of a column and count them as negatives. And then you can think about whatever resources you possess, and you can put those as positives down the other column. And then as you go down and you total and add up these things, what many of us will find is we get to the bottom and we say, I have a negative balance. Or if I have anything left over, it's like uh, Hudson Taylor's 87 cents. I might have some pocket change to deal with the problem. But the problem is many of us are not checking our accounting properly because we forget to factor God into the equation. And as soon as we add God onto the resource side, every negative becomes a positive. If Gideon were to remove God from the balance sheet, then Gideon's bankrupt. There's absolutely no way 300 men can defeat an army of 135,000. And so what God does is he gets Gideon to the point of, of bankruptcy, where he's flat on his back, he looks up, all he can see is God. He says, God, these odds are impossible, 450 to 1. And when Gideon becomes bankrupt based upon what he and he alone can do, that's exactly where God wants him. And God says, now, now I can begin to work. Now I can bring deliverance as you're fully dependent upon me. And friends, sometimes God does the same thing with us. He'll get us to a point where the odds look hopeless. As we're facing a crisis in our, in our family, in our finances, with our health, some other issue at school or at work, And God says when we're flat on our back and all we can do is look up and see him and we're fully dependent upon him, then he begins to work. We have to turn to him realizing that based upon what we can do, we're bankrupt. And one area that that's true of every single one of us is when it comes to our salvation. So many people go through life saying, you know, if I can live a good enough life, if I can go to church enough or give enough to God or do enough good deeds, well, then I can earn my way to heaven, that that I'll be able to climb that hill and one day enter heaven based upon how good I've been. But what God says to us is the exact opposite is true. Not a single one of us can get to God by being good enough. The way we live our life doesn't earn us entrance into heaven. It actually earns us separation from God. Because what the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 is the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see how we live, what we earn, our wages, is death. And the reason for that is because we're all sinners. Romans 3.10 tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we're trying to base it upon ourselves, we say, well, I think I've been pretty good. And God says, well, my standard is perfection. And as we try to get up that hill saying we can get to God, he says you're bankrupt because you're a sinner. You've, you've, you've made mistakes in your life and you owe a penalty called death. And the only way you get into heaven is based upon what my son Jesus Christ did for you. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23 tells us. It says while you and I can't get up that hill on our own, Jesus went up another hill called Calvary and he gave his life on a cross. And he died to pay that penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. The person who did not owe that penalty was God's son who lived a perfect life. And because of that, he could be the perfect and permanent sacrifice for you and I, shedding his blood to wash away our sins. When we receive his gift, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. 
It's not based on our works. It's based on God's grace. It's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And here, as we're looking at Judges chapter 7, we read in verse 2 that God said, Lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. You see, friends, no one is too small to be used by God, but we can be too big. We can't get a big head. We can't get prideful. We can say it's based upon what I can do. And God says when we're like that, he, it, he will not use us. Pride is the sin that caused Satan to fall. And pride is the sin that sidelines many men and women in our day. And what God was doing with Gideon is, is he was saying, you need to understand this is based upon nothing that you are doing. It is based fully upon what I am doing. When we get too big, uh, then God can't use us. We see an example, a warning of that, uh, through a king by the name of Uzziah. He, it was Judah's king in Second Chronicles 26.15. And it tells us there, his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by the Lord until he was strong. Don't miss that. This king was marvelously helped by the Lord. His fame spreads. His power grew. It says, until he was strong. And then Second Chronicles 5, uh, 26, 16 says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. He tried to usurp the place of the priest. He went into the temple to burn incense. God struck the king with leprosy. He was taken out of the temple and he was taken off the throne. And his son was uh, put in the throne in his place. In 1953, Queen Elizabeth took the throne in England. And as co- her coronation was coming, preparations were being made. The plans were in place. They had numerous rehearsals. They wanted everything to be perfect. And they came to the final rehearsal before the day of her actual coronation. And they said, we're going to do a run-through as if it is the, the exact real deal. And everything was, was run as if it were the, the actual event. And so all the people were in place. They were in Westminster Abbey. They're walking through the ceremony. They came to the place where the queen would enter. The orchestra finished a beautiful number. Uh, the archbishop stood at the altar dressed in all his robes. All the officers of state were there. They stood at attention. The doors were, were about to be thrown open where the queen would enter. So there was this spine-tingling blast of trumpets. And at that moment, the doors uh, were open to single the, the queen's entrance. And at that exact moment, four maids entered pushing carpet sweepers. They went down the the red carpet where all the feathers and glitter and things from all the robes and other things that were there, and they were cleaning up, and they went around the throne. uh, And the whole abbey rocked with laughter at the timing. These these, uh, cleaning ladies had a job to do, but they hardly deserved the fanfare of trumpet and all the heads of state standing at attention and everything looking like that, that honor belonged to the queen and the queen alone. And God tells us in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. As we're reading here in Judges 7, 2, God alone deserves the glory. The soldiers who would soon fight were the carpet sweepers. They had an important job to do. But the glory was God's and God's alone. So he reduces their numbers so there's no confusion as to who deserves the credit. It's God who will give the victory. And as he reduces their numbers, we see in verse 3 how he, he, starts, he starts with those who were scared. 
Another passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, tells us, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. You see, just as pride after a battle can rob God of his proper glory, uh, fear during the battle can rob God's soldiers of courage and power. Many of us know in our own lives that fear and discouragement is contagious. You've been around people who are, who are down, and they can take you down as well. And, and God knew that the, the fear that was there among the soldiers could, could be detrimental to the fight that was to come. And so he says these are the first to be sent home. I love the story of a little boy who had a part in a school play. He only had a single line. Uh, he was to come out on the stage, and he was to deliver his line. It is I, be not afraid. It is I, be not afraid. Little boy comes out, he takes his place on the stage, and he said, it's me and I'm scared. (laughs) Does anybody feel that way sometimes? God, it's me and I'm scared. We face those situations. We know those things. We know God is there. We know God is with us. We, We know about his power, his promises, his provision. But honestly, we say, God, it's me and I'm scared. That was Gideon. As we've seen in the previous sermons in this series, Gideon's been reminded over and over of God's power, his promises, his protection. And in those times where we're afraid, we need to do as Gideon was being told to do here, remind yourself of who God is, of what God has promised. As Gideon turns to talk to his army of 32,000, he says, listen, if you're afraid, go home. You have a chance to leave now. Now, I know Gideon knew some would leave. But I don't think he anticipated the stampede as 22,000 of the soldiers leave. Imagine being General Gideon standing there watching uh, most of your army melt away as 22,000 suddenly leave. He's left with 10,000 soldiers. Now at that moment he was probably disheartened and a bit worried, but then he might have reminded himself of what we saw earlier in Judges chapter 4. In Judges chapter 4, you'll remember that we saw there where where Barak and Deborah defeated another large, well-armed army with an army of 10,000. So Gideon says, well, we've gone from around 4 to 1 odds now to 135 to 1. Things are moving in the wrong direction, but I've still got a significant army of 10,000. God is going to do what he did in the past here. But as we see in verse 4, God says, Gideon, I'm not done yet reducing your army. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. As the men go to the stream for for a drink, they, they would have had to go down to the floor of the valley. They're up on this hillside. They can look across. There's this valley between. And that's where the, the, the brook is. That's where the river and the stream are of Harad. And they have to go down out of the safety of the high ground into the valley where they would be uh, easily ambushed by the army if they decided to march. So as the men go there, uh, we read in verse 6 how the majority of the men get down on their belly to drink. And here's one artist's rendition of what that looks like. And you notice to get down on your belly, it means if you're holding a sword or a spear or some other weapon, uh, you have to put it down because you, you lay down on the ground. You get down on your face. 
As you put your face down in the water to, de- to drink deeply to satisfy your thirst, it means a, a number of things. Not only are your weapons out of your hands, you're now flat on your face. You're going to have to you know, struggle to get up in time if there's an ambush. You can't look around and see the enemy. And so this is the majority of the army. But it says 300 of the men kind of squatted down. They would hold their, their spear in their hand or their shield in their hand, whatever they they had, they would reach down and scoop the water up and they would bring it to their mouth. They can look around while they're drinking. They're already halfway up. If they have to spring to their feet, they're able to do that. And God says, these are the men that we're going to use. Gideon, these are the guys that I'm choosing because they're fervent and they're ready. 2 Chronicles 16.9 tells us, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God says, Gideon, these are the 300 fervent men. These are the ones that are going to go and fight. You know, one of the things that we can draw from this passage, this part of the passage tells us here, we never know who is watching us. And we never know why we're being watched. I have a friend who's in charge of hiring employees for a large company. And he tells me part of his interview process, if he feels a person is a, is a good prospect, he'll take them off the company property to a cafeteria that's across the street. It's not owned by the company. It's just this buffet type of place where you go through the line, get your, your food and stuff, and then you pay for it. And he'll tell this prospective uh, hire, hey, listen, we're going to go across the street here for lunch. Uh, I'm not buying your lunch. You're not buying mine. We're, we're just both taking care of buying our own lunch. And as the employee, potential employee goes through the line, he watches them. He says as they take the items and the various things, uh, there's a place where you can get butter for your, your bread. And he says uh, some people will take this 5 or $0.10 cent pat of butter and they'll slide it under their plate or put their napkin over it so the cashier won't see that they have it. They'll ask for a water glass, and then when they get to the drink area, they'll get iced tea or uh, a soft drink that they didn't pay for. And he says, when these things happen, I don't care how good of a candidate they are, I don't hire them, because they just failed a very important secret test of honesty. He says it's only five cents for the butter or a dollar for the Coke, but if little things don't count, well, then the office supplies aren't safe. And then who knows what's next? There's a man by the name of Marsden, and he once said, Make every occasion a great occasion, for you can never tell when somebody may be taking your measure for a larger place. Make every occasion a great occasion, because you can never tell when somebody may be taking your measure for a larger place. Friends, you and I may never know who's watching us or for what reason. Now listen carefully. I'm not telling you to fake it. I'm not telling you to go out there and be on your best behavior when you think people are watching or when you're in a scenario where you think, oh, somebody might be checking in on me. There's something called character. Character is what you are when nobody is looking. Your reputation is what you are when others are looking. And so many people, uh, you know, put up this, this false uh, circumstance, this is who I am, and a show so that you have this reputation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you take care of your character, what you are when nobody is looking, you never have to worry about your reputation because what you are is what people will see all the time. As we look at what's happening here in Judges 7, 
God takes an army of 32,000 faithful men. These are the ones who said, we're ready to fight. Some were fearful, but they said, we're going to show up, we're going to fight. And he reduces it down to 10,000 fearless men. And from there, God reduces it down to 300 fervent men. Gideon ends up with less than 1% of the group that he began with. And at that point, having had their numbers cut down to a level where they could have no confidence in themselves, we see where God then moves to build their confidence in him. Verses 9 through 11 tell us now that same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid, go down... If you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. Now, I don't imagine that God had to wake Gideon up that night, do you? I think Gideon was laying there in bed, worried about how his army went from 32,000 to 300, what the battle was going to look like the next day. So as God tells Gideon, it's time to arise and attack Gideon says, there are now 450 well-armed soldiers for every one soldier I have. And as the odds looked overwhelming, what we need to remember in our own life is when the odds are overwhelming, God can overwhelm the odds. God can overwhelm the odds. As he gives the order to attack the enemy's camp, don't miss the promise of verse 9 that goes with it. He says, for I have given it into your hands. Now, God had previously promised this. But at the moment that the battle comes, he knows Gideon needs to be reminded. So he he reminds him once again. Something else we've previously seen in chapter 6, you'll remember, is how Gideon is always asking for signs. Every time God says, go and do something, Gideon says, "Ah, could you you give me a sign? Could you show me? Could you, you know, bolster my faith? Notice that this time the request for confirmation doesn't come from Gideon. Rather, it's from God. God says, hey, Gideon, do you need another sign? Psalm 103.14 tells us, for God himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God says, listen, I know who you are. I made you. I know you're a finite person. I know you have fears. I know you have struggles. Friends, remember in Hebrews 4, we're told that when God's son left his throne in heaven and walked the earth, that he went through all the limitations of life, all the challenges that you and I face. And because of that, Hebrews 4 tells us we have a high priest in heaven who knows our struggles and sympathizes with us. We have a God who knows us, who loves us. He knows our fears and limitations. He knew Gideon was struggling in the past, and he knew Gideon was struggling that night with what was to come. So he says, Gideon, if you're still scared, I'll give you a sign. Well, we know Gideon was scared because we see he takes advantage of the sign. In verses 11 through 14, Gideon's happy to take God up on the offer because it says, So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, And he said, behold, I had a dream. A a, a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and it struck it so that it fell. And it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. The man of Israel, God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. 
Now, you remember last week we talked about the ways that God guides us, and one of those, I said, was sometimes through divinely uh, ordained circumstances. And here we see uh, God's hand in the process. You know, don't miss God's control of the whole situation. It begins with God's protection of Gideon and his servant. They came down off the mountain. They went through the valley. There would have been sentries and outposts and, and guards around the camp. And God brings them safely through all of that, right to the edge of the camp. There would have been tens of thousands of tents for 135,000 soldiers. And God just happens to bring Gideon to the right tent at the exact moment that one of the guys wakes up and says to, to his buddy, hey man, I should not have eaten that goat sandwich. I just had the weirdest dream. And he says, really? Well, tell me about it. And he says, there was this barley loaf came rolling down, it hit the tent, it flipped it over, tore it up. And he says, what do you think it means? And the guy says, man, there's, there's no doubt. This is going to be nothing less than, than God giving Gideon the victory over us. Now, as Gideon hears the dream, he, he hears the interpretation. And, and as this is happening, aside from the fact that God's given the dream its interpretation so we're, we're sure of it, you can see how the images fit because uh, the, the type of bread that most men and women ate were, was made of wheat. You know, we have gluten-free people here today. I have some in my family, but uh, they would eat wheat bread. That was the fine food. Barley was reserved for the animals. Animals ate the barley. That was the trash uh, grain of the day. And Israel is left only with barley because the enemy is stealing the crops of the land. The barley harvest would come later in the season. So after the enemy withdrew, that was all that was left, and that's what Israel was subsisting on. So a barley loaf obviously represents Israel. And then the tent is a good representation of the Midianites because you'll remember they're nomadic people. They lived in tents. So as you're picturing this dream... Uh, you can see who's who, but I want you to think about the dream. This isn't a little donut rolling down a hill and hitting a child-sized play tent that just kind of falls over. Uh, you'll remember where we saw in Judges 4 where J.L. hammered a tin peg through Sisera's skull. And we talked about how it was a big stake. These were well-anchored tents. These weren't little two-man camping tents. These were the, the baker tents that the armies bivouac with in the field. These were the things, there's 135,000 soldiers. So you have these massive, well-secured tents that are anchored to the ground, and you see this barley loaf that comes down and it hits the tent. Now the tent doesn't just kind of fall over. Uh, as, as we read what is happening here, it's not the picture of somebody tossing a dinner roll and your tent just poofs over. Uh, the, the dream is one where a sturdy structure was decimated. God wants Gideon to hear uh, this miraculous thing that was about to happen. So there are three different Hebrew words that are used to describe the destruction of the tent. The tent doesn't just collapse, it's crushed. It doesn't just lay on the ground, it's trampled. And it's not just trampled, it's literally shredded. The Hebrew word translated as tumbling is used in Genesis 3.24 to describe the flaming sword that was wielded by the angel that was turning in every direction when the angel was guarding the camp. So the, the picture here is if you've ever been driving down the road and you see one of those big tree trimming trucks that have that shredder on the back and you know they take those huge branches and logs and they throw them in the back and the thing goes... 
and you end up with the tiny little chips of, of this, what had been a, a tree before. This is the picture here. This is what's about to happen to the enemy's army. God says this army of 135,000 is about to turn their swords on each other. So there's going to be blades flashing in every direction. As much as I'd like to get to that part of the story, we're going to come back to that next week. And if you're going, oh, well, go home and read it. You can see it for yourself. (laughs) But come back next week and we're going to talk about it. What I want to end with today is what we see in verse 15. It says, and it came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He bowed in worship. Friends, I want you to remember the chronology. I want you to remember what is happening. We are at the point of the story where Gideon has been awake at night. He's worried. He's thinking about this battle and how is it going to turn out? He snuck over to the edge of the camp. He's there. The battle is still to come. The enemy is still there. He's on the edge of this massive enemy encampment of 135,000 soldiers. But the warrior becomes a worshiper. The warrior becomes a worshiper because he's flat on his back. He looks up. He only sees God. He says, without God, there's no way. And at that moment, he sees God. He says, I trust you, God. I know what you're going to do. And I trust you. Friends, as we come to a close today, I want you to think about what you're facing in your life right now. I want you to think about the challenges you are personally facing this morning. Health issues, hurting relationships, family problems, finances, whatever it is you're facing this morning. I want you to think about the odds and what you're facing and how you're saying, God, there's there's just no way through this. I don't see how this, this situation can be turned. There's no hope. There's no healing available. Without God, you're right. But with God, it's possible. We have free will. We can get in. We can mess up things. But God says, if you will try to handle it all by yourself, you're going to fail. But if you will turn to me, if you will trust in me, if you will give those things to me, then I can help you. I can help you not only overcome the situation, but I can give you the peace that you need as you go through the storm. So as we prepare to go to God in prayer now, I want you to think about the challenges you're facing. Finances, health, hurting relationships, whatever you're dealing with, and I want you to give them to God now, not only asking for his help, but for his peace that passes all understanding. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll close our time in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, as we read through the Gospels, we see time after time where you, Jesus, were with the disciples in the midst of challenging and difficult situations. Situations like we find in Mark chapter 4 where you were in a boat with the disciples in a storm and the wind and the waves were so severe the boat was flooding that the disciples cried out and said to you, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? And you stood up, Jesus, and you said to the wind and the waves, Hush, be still. Peace be still, and the wind ceased. 
and it was perfectly calm. God, right now, we're in a storm. Our country's a mess. Challenges on so many different fronts. We're facing a a pandemic worldwide. We have hard things that are happening in many of our lives, our homes, our schools, our workplaces. And God, as we look at the storm raging around, we're tempted at times to say, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? God, where are you? And you're right there with us in the boat. And Jesus, you can stand and say, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves will stop. But God, sometimes you choose not to still the storm, but to take us through the storm. And we thank you that we're never going through it alone, that you go with us. You're there with us, God. You promise never to leave us or forsake us. So God, whatever it is that we're facing this morning, you've heard the prayers of your people. You know the hurts. You know the hopes. You know the things that are happening. God, there are problems that are overwhelming so many of us. We thank you that we have a God that can overwhelm the odds, though. That for every giant-sized problem, there's a God-sized solution. And so, God, today we turn to you. We lay these needs at your feet. We ask for your help. Beyond your help, God, we ask for your peace that passes all understanding to strengthen and encourage us as you take us through the storm. We trust in you, God. We give our lives to you. We ask for your help and leading. In Jesus' holy name we pray and thank you. Amen.